0: Hello, everyone, and if you'll give me just a moment, I have the great pleasure of recommending a tremendous and long standing companion in history podcasting to you, Scott Chesworth, and the Ancient World Podcast. Scott started around the same time as me in our slowly growing community of the time, and his was one of those that immediately stood out. He makes the subject as clear and complete as the sources allow, he's authoritative, measured, and it's such a fascinating topic. So, I heartily recommend it to you, and here is Scott to tell you just a little more. Do you love Greek and Roman history, but also want to learn about all the ancient civilizations that came before them? Then The Ancient World is the podcast for you. You'll hear about the Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, and ancient Egyptians right down through the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. You can find it all right here and it's sometimes even funny so check out the ancient world podcast wherever you get your pods or at ancientworldpodcast.com cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 338, Book of Books. Honestly, I have to tell you, Walter's final gamble, the final countdown, didn't get off to much of a flyer. After all the drama of the send-off and the excitement, they got nowhere very slowly and were blown ashore at Cork. Now, don't get me wrong, I have no intention whatsoever of dissing Cork, which I know is a wonderful place full of fun, laughter and small furry animals. But... If you're heading for South America, making landfall at Cork isn't the route you'd find inscribed on the most secret pilot rutters guarded with a captain's life. It'll be more. Captain's log, date 1617. Oh bloody hell, wandered around for two months in a little of a cork. Also, then one of his captains, John Bailey, jumped ship and headed home because he missed his wife, which is kind of nice and, without wanting to spoil the plot, was actually a pretty good career decision as well, as it happens. Finally, they got away. But you know, there is a rule of life I would like to share with you from my own personal experience. This is that when the wheels come off, it is pretty much impossible to put them back on, especially when your crew is infested with disease. So when they finally did get going, 42 of the crewmen promptly celebrated by dying, which was a bit of a downer. And even Walter was so sick, he could eat no solids for three months. But finally, finally, they tipped up at the Orinoco Delta, and in line with their mission, not to hurt or even look at any Spaniards. Good Lord, no. They overran a Spanish settlement, killed the governor. And Walter's eldest son, Watt, was sadly killed in the process. Watt's death broke poor Walter, robbed the great explorer of his initiative and his leadership. Deserted by yet more of his captains, they all limped home, not even being able to stir themselves to wait off the Azores for the Spanish treasure fleet. They dragged themselves into Plymouth, where the full fury of a king scorned met them head-on. All they'd brought home was some looted baccy, and famously James I thought smoking was a filthy habit. The Spanish were spitting blood And James ordered Raleigh's arrest along with a proclamation in June, anointing Raleigh's head with outrage for his evil attacks on his very best mates, the Spanish. Although his arrest had been ordered, those so ordered to carry it out were pretty reluctant to lay hands on a national hero and symbol of the country's triumphant youth. So Raleigh was left to recuperate and write an apologia for his actions which James refused to read, which was really just as well, since its basic thrust was, well, if you didn't want me to kill Spaniards, you shouldn't have sent me. It never does to tell the kings the truth, unless you happen to be Cornet Joyce arresting Charles I and therefore have suitable authority with you. In August 1618, Raleigh came home, home to the Tower of London. James, it must be said, was not in two minds about anything to do with Raleigh now. But you know, you have to go through the form, the process and all that. So James put his finest legal minds on it, Francis Bacon and Edward Cook and four other commissioners, who concluded that since Raleigh was legally a dead man walking anyway, they should just remove the walking bit. In October 1618, Raleigh was taken to make his case before the commissioners and by the 28th of October, sentence of death had duly been pronounced. He was given two concessions. That he would be beheaded rather than hung, drawn and all that malarkey and that he could make a speech from the scaffold. That night, he and Bess met for the very last time. Raleigh was to be executed in the old Palace Yard just south of Westminster Abbey. The day was cunningly chosen to be on the day of the Lord Mayor's pageant to distract the crowd and stop them coming. The crowds, however, were not so easily distracted and the place was absolutely rammed. Raleigh had to be shoved forcibly through the crowds to get to the gallows. The Dean of Westminster, meanwhile, had been rather put out by just how cheerful Raleigh was at breakfast as he smoked his beloved morning pipe. Raleigh knew how to die well. He would written a final poem before he came out into the palace yard, which I shall read for you here. Even such is time which takes in trust our youth, our joys and all we have, and pays us naught but age and dust, which in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days, and from which grave and earth and dust the Lord shall rise me up, I trust. Raleigh spoke on the scaffold for 25 minutes, refuting the accusations against him in some detail. He then did the traditional thing of agreeing that he obviously deserved to die and all that, and offered up a prayer before saying to the crowd, roguishly, I should think, I have a long journey to make, Therefore, I must leave you. He insisted on seeing the axe first and said famously, this is sharp medicine, but it is a sure cure for all diseases, which is a good point, well made. He knelt, his shirt was torn to reveal his neck. He then, in effect, told the executioner to get on with it. Two strokes and it was done. The reign of Elizabeth was finally at an end. The fallout was quite interesting. The Spanish ambassador, not Gondomar for a while, wrote home with admiration for the way that Raleigh had died and related that there'd been a great commotion and much upset. Raleigh was buried as close as possible to where he'd been killed, at St Margaret's Church just across the road, to avoid any processions, demonstrations of grief and popular acclaim and all that sort of thing. Popular acclaim is so vulgar. And then James had Francis Bacon produce a tract, justifying the death. James, more than any preceding monarch, understood the importance of owning the message in print. Obviously, Elizabeth was a master at visual messaging. James used the new media. You couldn't imagine Edward I giving a tinker's curse about managing the message. Once again, public opinion was now beginning to matter. Edward I would probably have been right to so not bother, though. After all, it didn't work for James in this occasion. Raleigh's biographer notes that Raleigh was remembered as a national hero, despite dying without more than a few beans to rub together and never having achieved the high political influence that he craved himself. But his name was going to be an inspiration in the civil wars against royal oppression. Raleigh captured the imagination... It's Raleigh's carelessness with cloaks and puddles, we remember. Raleigh the Explorer. Raleigh, and his daring do. Raleigh the Renaissance Man. Whereas I had to work very hard, I suspect, to make anyone realise that Robert Cecil was a talented and successful national leader and administrator, to which I suspect he might have thought, whatevs. Anyway, that's Walter. Sorry I didn't really do him justice. Best Raleigh, meanwhile managed to recover many of the assets of the expedition and lived to the ripe old age of 82, dying in 1647 in pretty good comfort. I think there is a story there in Bess Raleigh, nobody's fool. Now then, I think we should turn away from the tragic story of Walt and go instead to the northern parts, to Scotland in the company of our King. When he ascended to the Crown of England, the Scottish people were much concerned, that they would become just a province to their ancient line of kings of this concern jimmy sought to soothe them talking about their most perfect religion and that anyway he'd come back every 3 years so they would not become strangers in this he might well have been sincere at the time but did not manage to live up to his promises i fear towards ever thus with even the best of our political leaders the best laid plans, and all that. Still, nonetheless, James was able to be smug. Never an attractive characteristic, but let's put that to one side for the moment. Smug, that he was able to rule Scotland with great ease from a distance, by the stroke of a pen, as he put it. Interestingly, in 1626, the Earl of Mar would put a slightly different spin on this claim when talking to James's son, Charles, on the occasion of his accession to the throne. The Earl of Mar, in fact, remarked that "...a hundred times your worthy father has sent down directions which we have stayed, and he has given thanks for it when we have informed him of the truth." From which he might take the view that the main skill of a leader is in choosing the right people around him and the best skill of the led is to know which orders to follow and which to quietly file. James's Scottish Privy Council, led by the Earl of Dunbar and the Earl of Dunfermline, had ignored the potty ideas and only gone ahead with the art of the possible. So, to a degree, the distance had done both parties some good. Still, credit must also go to James. As you remember, the potential for conflict in Scotland was ever-present. The more radical Protestants, led by the likes of Andrew Melville, we very much against the idea of the king having authority over the kirk. Melville talked of two kingdoms, God's kingdom and the king's kingdom, and the king's kingdom was the lesser of the two. And indeed, if a king stepped out of line, religiously speaking, then it was perfectly legit for his people to remove him as a tyrant. Bishops then. Let's talk about bishops. Because bishops as an instrument, as it was seen, of royal power were not popular to the likes of Melville and the radical Presbyterians. Melville eventually was banished for his pains, for all his debate, but the debate was still a live one and needed careful handling. Well, James deserved some credit, as I say, because he proceeded to push bishops back into the structure of the church by not pushing things too hard or too fast, taking it slow, playing in the long game. And it worked. By 1611, the bishops had all been reappointed to the church. They were fully involved in secular affairs as well as church business, just as they always had been before. Sitting on the Privy Council, for example, which probably, almost certainly, brought Melville out in spots as he carried out his assignment assessments as Professor of Theology in Sedan, France, for a small fee of X percentage of NAFOL per assessment. I am reflecting some family outrage at the pitiable fees given to PhD students for marking assessments, which surely, surely, doesn't figure as politics, does it? Now look, you are probably wondering, possibly impatiently, why am I noodling on about Scottish bishops rather than moving on to the British Civil Wars for which you are all waiting impatiently? Well, I might remind you that everything kicks off with something called the Bishop's Wars. So, you know, ha, touche and all that sort of thing. I am preparing the ground. Anyway, in 1617, James decided that he must go north to his homeland once more. Scotland was always close to his heart and he worried that his relationships with the great lords was getting out of date and he hardly knew anyone well anymore. And James knew that in Scotland, even more than in England, the regional power of the nobility was absolutely paramount and his royal role as arbiter between factions amongst the nobility had always been critical to the effective running of the Scottish kingdom. Now, the prospect of the king leaving court had his English courtiers running around in a right old panic. On one occasion, Buckingham and the other courtiers ambushed the king in his bedchamber and tried to talk him out of it. Please don't go, king. You might be killed. Please don't go, king. There might be infighting back here. We can't do without you. You might never come back and stay in Scotland. On being told by James not to be ridiculous boobies, they went for the full theatrical effect, and they all knelt round his bed, pleading for him not to go. Did they have no pride? But James had plans, and so, like the tiger who came to tea, he went, after raising a bag of cash to make sure he could enjoy the journey to its full. The Scottish Privy Council had also made extravagant and detailed preparations for his visit, and it was all something of a triumph though it cost a king's ransom. James did what he did best. He met his lords, he hunted, he hung out with all at court, spread the love, pressed the flesh, and he presided over a synod of the kirk. And this is what we have come to see, you and I. Because James seems to have had a bit of a change of heart with his previous softly, softly approach. It is important to remember that the Scots considered their Kirk infinitely superior to the Church of England because it was closer to the model proposed by Calvin. So passions were high, and you've already heard that if there's anyone who could make the English look like Catholic loving backsliders who secretly loved the Pope, then it was the Scots. But now, James proposed five changes to the Synod. These were that only bishops were to carry out confirmations, that there would be private baptisms and communion for the sick, and then the five greatest pre-Reformation festivals were re-established, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension and Whit Sunday. So now we know where Cromwell got the idea of cancelling Christmas from. Only kidding. As you all know, of course, Cromwell didn't cancel Christmas. Even more contentiously, though, everyone must receive communion while kneeling. Now, that doesn't sound that explosive compared to, say, mm, thermonuclear war, but it was the theological equivalent in Scotland to thermonuclear war because kneeling implied acceptance of transubstantiation. And that, my friend, is a deeply Catholic concept. Well... The Synod were shocked by James' suggestion. There was widespread chin-wobbling. I mean, they didn't like to diss the opinions of their Stuart monarchs, obviously, but for many of them, the compromise, the lover of the middle way, had just become closet Catholic as far as radical Presbyterians were concerned. James would be suggesting tea with the Pope before you could say mitre. They sought to fight him off these five acts... But James forced them through, and he forced the bishops to push them through at a General Assembly at Perth in 1618, once he'd gone back to England. And so, the Articles of Perth were born, and the Articles of Perth would return to haunt the Stuarts. Remember that name, Five Articles of Perth. Now, the bishops were left behind and knew they were handling dynamite and were suitably careful with the material – tried to defuse the situation by not enforcing the five acts very rigorously. But James would get increasingly impatient with them, and in 1621 he forced them through a parliament, which was once more unusually fiercely fought by MPs where there was normally no debate. The problem was that James was rather liking the English church with its bishops, and, you know, being governor of the church suited him down to the ground. Religious divergence between England and Scotland was actually growing, which is something of a drawback when you have three kingdoms and you want them all to be pretty much the same and part of a new Britain. From north of the border, it looked as though their king was going native. And then James was about to embark on a foreign policy that would annoy the English almost as much as the Scots with its Spain friendly flavour. For the first time, then, the Kirk was in the grip of real lay resistance to royal authority, not just resistance by a group of radical ministers led by the likes of Melville. The middle ground of ministers, normally relaxed about royal authority. It was traditional, after all, now began to shift in their attitude. It was now James, rather than Melville, who seemed to be taking an extreme viewpoint. Many congregations now voted with their feet. Nonconformism grew strongly as congregations left the kirk and established their own conventicles. This was very strange and very unusual for a church which prided itself and was incredibly successful at establishing its national uniformity. Very strange to it and very wrong. Culture wars, ladies and gentlemen. This is Culture War. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. James left the land of his fathers and traveled south and came to a place called Lancashire in August 1617. Now, to be honest, the good folk of Lancashire didn't normally get kings and queens travelling around over their hallowed earth. All those summer progresses of Elizabeth and others tended to stay in the south. So, the good citizens of Myerscough decided to make the most of it, and they participated in the political process according to the 17th century idiom, petitioning the passing king, father of his people. Now, religiously speaking, Lancashire was an unusual place of polar opposites. It had a strong remaining Catholic presence, but also a strong Puritan streak. And the JPs seemed to have been of the latter Puritan persuasion. And do you know what? They were sick of all the messing about that happened on Sundays, which was, after all, the Lord's Day. And if the Lord had wanted everyone bull-baiting or dancing or playing bowls... Surely he'd have put it into at least one of the commandments. So, the previous august sixteen sixteen, the exasperated JPs had issued a series of orders at the Lancashire Assize Courts designed to compel Sunday observance. One of the things they were specific about was that there be no piping, dancing, bowling, barrel bull baiting, or any other profanation upon any sabbath day in any part of the day or upon any festival day in times of divine services well that's a bum rack and make no mistake hence in 1617 the petition to the king by the people of lancashire objecting to said ruling after all with one day off a week the good people didn't get much of an opportunity for a bit of a hoolie if that's the right word for bowling They were fortunate to hit a royal nerve. Just as James was proving to be less enthusiastic about strict Calvinism in Scotland, so he was increasingly suspicious of Puritans. It was pretty clear in his mind that the Pope was the enemy abroad, but the Puritans, with their two-kingdoms stuff and their insistence that the Church did not go far enough, they were the enemy within. James was very probably unduly suspicious of the danger they presented, actually. The vast majority of Puritans were not separatists. The Mayflower Bunch would be unusual in that respect. But, but, every so often there was a separatist who put the wind up James. There was one, just for example, called John Trask, a Somerset man and priest who from 1614 began to develop a secret Judaical religious community, with theories that looked increasingly nutty to James's eye and certainly looked nutty to the Church of England. It has to be said that one of the most important things to remember if you also form a secret separatist community is don't write a ranty tract about it to the king. At first, actually, Trask rather tickled James. Oddly enough, The fact that he wouldn't eat black pudding struck the royal funny bone. One courtier wrote home that the news of this made His Majesty exceeding merry on Sunday at dinner and were almost the sole subject of his discourse. Well, the hilarity didn't last long. Not only was Trask a separatist, but his ideas seemed to be spreading. Trask was therefore dealt with in the early modern manner. He was sentenced to be degraded, fined, whipped, pilloried, branded, had his ears nailed to the pillory and to be jailed at the king's pleasure, which was, in this case, until 1620. And then, it has to be said, Trask kept cheerfully treading the path of heresy. The point about Trask for James was, apart from his outrage at the anti-black puddingism, Separatism from the National Church meant separating from the royal supremacy, and that would never do and Puritans, to James's mind were all potential separatists. So back to Lancashire and the petition on the one hand, James was rather sympathetic to the sports thing in again a rather empathetic way. after all, it was said most people only got Sunday off work, when else were they meant to live a little? Maybe it's this that had encouraged James to reintroduce the pre-Reformation festivals into Scotland. As far as he was concerned, banning all this fun was counterproductive and likely only to drive recusants back into the arms of the Catholic Church who were noted for fresh air and fun, a bit like Blackpool. But what really got James's goat was the fact that those JPs had decided it was in their gift to change the laws of the land. And that was arrogating royal powers where they should not be arrogated. So, James had the local bishop issue a declaration which James would then reissue the following year to everyone and it became known as the Book of Sports. James's son would reissue it in 1633 in a slightly revised format in a rather more combustible situation. I have published the Book of Sports on the website, should you care to look. It's not very long. The Book of Sports explicitly picked on Puritans and precise people. He ordered that ordinary people be left to carry on their lawful recreations according to the canons of the Church, and while he was on it, he ordered that Puritans should be made by the bishop to leave the country. The document is imbued with the spirit of obedience and conformity to the laws of the land. If you are interested in the acceptable, and unacceptable sports and recreations on a Sunday, after the church service, obviously. Here is the guts of the Book of Sports, starting with activities from which they should not be banned and were lawful, such as dancing, either men or women, archery for men, leaping, vaulting, or any other such harmless recreation, nor be banned from the having of May games, wits and ales and Morris dances, and the setting up of maypoles and other sports therewith used. So, as the same be had in due and convenient time without impediment or neglect of divine service, and that women shall have leave to carry rushes to the church for the decorating of it according to their old custom. But with all we do here account still as prohibited, all unlawful games to be used upon Sunday only, as bear and bull baitings, interludes, and at all times, in the meaner sort of people, by law prohibited, bowling. An interlude, incidentally, was a sort of bit of drama or mimicry designed to be mocking or funny during a break in a stage show. Obviously, far too much potential for ribald fun. And obviously, bowling was the work of the devil, still is, to be honest. Now, the Book of Sports caused controversy in Jacobean England. It rather encouraged the stop the Puritans from taking over brigade and emboldened them to take them on. So, there is a village called Lee Marston where local Puritans and godly had been trying to have something of a crackdown on the ungodly. After the Book of Sports appeared, the opposition planned a comeback. So, there we are, us godly people, in the church, preparing to do our thing. A bunch of parishioners came in, wearing the most ungodly garb, fool's motley, and coats. And then halfway through the service, they rushed out of it, in the middle of the service, would you believe. And from outside came a dreadful and most ungodly racket, of guns being shot in the air, and cries of, Come out, ye Puritans, come out! Obviously, we proceeded in a dignified and godly manner, left the church in due course, and not before, only to find that all rushed off down the local alehouse anywhere, where they taboured and danced the whole time. A shocking situation, I'm sure you'll agree, and my sympathy, of course, is entirely with the godly. Culture wars again. Puritans complained furiously to anyone who would listen. JPs, bishops, church wardens... Overseers of the poor, so much so that George Abbott, the Archbishop of Canterbury, persuaded the King not to insist that the Book of Sports be read out in every church, and by and large, most bishops didn't try to enforce it, knowing that it would be trouble and in James's England, anyway, as we have heard, the various wings of the church, from Puritans at one end and Arminians at the other, were quite nicely balanced in authority neither of them having the upper hand. And so James had achieved a workable balance, though to describe it as harmony would be pushing it. Nonetheless, he had the confidence, intelligence and good political sense to know when to push, when to hold back. With such skills, maybe the tensions could have been forever managed and the separatists kept to the margins, like the Plymouth settlers. But should a monarch come to the throne without those skills, there could be trouble ahead. Nudge, nudge, wink, and I say again, wink. OK, I set myself one more thing to do in this episode, which is to set right a deep, deep wrong. I've got to follow up on one of the lasting achievements of Jacobean England, the authorised version of the Bible, or the KJV, the King James Version. Since my childhood was peppered with quotes from this text, this is most remiss of me. I'm still not sure of the relevance of Esau's hairiness. Anyway, I remember that we got as far as talking about the Hampton Court Conference way back in sixteen O four, and that a Puritan, a man called John Reynolds, made a plea to James that he should consider commissioning a new English version of the Bible. Now that was brave of Reynolds, because as it happens, James had given the Puritans a bit of a hammering, as James was wont to do. However, Reynolds was an impressive scholar, a moderate Puritan, with a keen understanding and some respect for Catholicism, a man described as a living library. So, a reasonable man to make the pitch. But the main reason he came away with a win to offset the pain a little was that he struck a nerve. James also wanted such a thing and was pleased to be asked, I profess I never yet see a Bible translated well into English, he said, at which point William Tyndale was gesticulating furiously from the pearly gates and demanding to be sent back for just one day to give this bloke a piece of his mind. Still, there was a quite secular reason why James wanted a new Bible. The most popular Bible at the time was not Coverdale's or the one that Henry Eighth had placed in every church, the Great Bible. It was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible had been produced in Geneva, as it happens, but by a group of English Puritans during the Marian Persecution, and it relied heavily on Tyndale's translations. It would itself remain very popular amongst Puritans, and being produced by 1560, it was the Bible William Shakespeare had by his elbow very probably, and that John Knox brandished at Mary, Queen of Scots, and at a lot of other people, one feels John Knox was something of a a professional brandisher. After the King James Version came out, many of a puritanical persuasion would still use the Geneva Version. Olly Crom, for example, when he wasn't cancelling Christmas, John Donne. The main reason, though, for its popularity was its availability. Unlike the Great Bible, it was mechanically produced and available for use, rather than being chained in the church, as was the official Bible of the Church of England. That wasn't why James disliked it, though. What he didn't like about the Geneva Bible was all the annotations the Puritan translators had added in the margins. Way, way too gobby as far as James was concerned, practically advocating revolution as far as he could see, i.e. packed full of that hideous principle he'd had crammed down his throat by his tutor George Buchanan in his youth, that if a king was not up to snuff religion-wise, he was a tyrant, and his people could send him back to God, reply paid and get a new one. Untrue, seditious, and savouring too much of dangerous and treacherous conceits, James fulminated. He liked to point to the marginal note of Exodus one seventeen, for example, which commended the Hebrew midwives for their civil disobedience. Then there was the translation itself, which had made some poor choices if you happen to be a believer in the divine right of kings who firmly believed that if a people were unlucky enough to get a tyrant as a king, all they could do was grin and bear it. And oi, you, not so much grinning while we're about it. So, for example, what was the word tyrant doing there at all? It appears over 400 times in the Geneva Bible, apparently, though... Fair dues. It's a big book. Well, book of books. So, it was a yes to a new Bible from James. Let it be so. James established six companies of scholars, two in Oxford, two in Cambridge and two in Westminster. This was a good time for scholars in Greek, Hebrew as well as Latin. So there were scholars to spare. 54 of them were commissioned to do the work. Those scholars were chosen for their skill, not some kind of political or religious affiliation. James might be suspicious of the Puritans, for example, but 25% of the translators were Puritan. He might be careful not to let Arminians get too much of a voice, but men like Lancelot Andrews, the leader of one of the Westminster companies, were very much of that persuasion. Lancelot, by the way, is said to have mastered 15 languages which is very impressive since I personally am still working on number one and only got to Asterix and Obelix the Gauls on the backup language. Anyway Lancelot was something of a preacher to boot combining his scholarship with his language skills with his ability to communicate and inspire. King James apparently slept sometimes with his written sermons under his pillow. A new angle on pillow talk I would have thought. The Bible split up into sections, and companies met to work on their section using a variety of Bibles. The most expert in that particular language read, while others listened, consulting their own Bibles, and if they disagreed with the turn of phrase, they spoke up. This work proceeded for years. In a spirit of reverence as well as scholarship, this is, after all, God's book we're talking about here there was an important principle behind their translations that had passed me by mea culpa, which is that these men, although scholars, were very aware that they were dealing with a largely illiterate audience. Yes, of course, the Bible would be read by those who could read, I mean, obviously, but as we discussed a couple of episodes ago, that only meant about a quarter of the population. Unless you were quite high up the food chain, you wouldn't be able to read. But you'd still hear the word of God. But it would be likely read to you by the minister or by one of your family that could read, your parent, a preacher at open-air rallies and so on. The more quotable it was, the more the word could and would be shared and spread. So this was a Bible which was, as far as humanly possible, translated to be spoken. As Melvin writes... It would be spoken on the battlefield, in the hospital, in church, at rallies, and I might add, in the pub, or at the dinner table, which is where I received most of my King James Version. That, by the way, was Melvin, at whose book of books I was pointed. I do love Melvin. He's a dyed-in-the-war Anglican, and the church will lose a powerful advocate when he's gone, and the old lady really needs some passion. And as for Tyndale, well, when Melville goes to the pearly gates, I could be wrong, but I think he'll be looking out for William first, I would guess. Anyway, someone also said they had done a podcast on the making of the King James Version, a member of our parish. I went to look for it, couldn't find it, and then goldfish-like, it slipped from my mind. So please, if you are listening out there, make yourself known to be. I'm always keen to promote the podcasts of our parishioners. Anyway, where were we? Oh yes, the Word of God. That's the one, silly me. Lancelot Andrews and the Westminster Company worked away in the Jerusalem chamber of what had been the Abbot's House at Westminster Abbey, and that's a thought in itself. A room steeped in history and momentous events. Built in the 14th century, it saw work not just on the authorised version, but the revised version of 1870 the New English Bible in 1961, and the Revised English Bible in 1989. In the winter of 1643, the Westminster Assembly of Divines met there, and the coffins of many famous people have lain there before their funerals, including a nice line in 18th century dramatists like Joseph Addison and William Congreve, plus a polymath by the name of Isaac Newton. Interestingly, I figured James would maybe have worked in IT had he been around because he was something of a fan of a good detailed user specification and James and Salisbury, who were still alive at that point of course, produced a list of rules for the translators. As part of those rules, they tried to ensure that the language used was slightly archaic, even for 1609, verily, and it came to pass, are examples of this. By so doing, they gave the Bible a ready-made feeling of antiquity and thereby authority or otherworldliness, if you like. And if this is so, it does seem a clever tactic. I don't want you to think I'm some old fogey, anything other than a young, thrusting and dynamic sort of podcaster, but there was something that got lost when the King James Version stopped being used in church, don't you think? even though the language was extraordinarily out of date by then. There was something reassuring about the old words, and deeply connective, if that isn't too ugly a word. It was obvious to you that you were treading in the same tracks as countless generations before you. And to a young fogey like me, that mattered. Just to give you an idea of my personal old fartiness credentials, when I were a lad the version of the lord's prayer i was taught had the words and forgive them that trespass against us of course for ages people had been using you know proper english as it's called those who rather than them that and no one's trespassing anymore by the way they're sinning now which is probably because the bloody government is trying to criminalize trespass but that is politics isn't it so i ban myself i am banned anyway my point is that some people like the weight that comes with the tradition, the traditional language. Anyway, in 1609, the company's work was done and a general committee of revision met to work through it all. Then it was presented to the king and then off to the printers. By 1611, it was printed. In point of fact, it was never actually officially authorised, though it was appointed by the king to read in churches, Official authorization would have required Parliament, and James was not keen on Parliament. Printing didn't go that well, as it happens. There were typos. In one of the printings, there was a commandment that said, Thou shalt commit adultery. Annoyingly, the church, the pesky Killjoys, pointed out the error, but the version was forever known as the Wicked Bible. There were a few other objections to the new version, in addition to the fact that it commanded people to have sex outside the established mores of the day, which was, shall we say, eccentric. Some thought liberties were taken with some of the words, but then, hey, that is surely the nature of translation. It is true sense you're looking for. Some declared they would rather be, as one writer put it, rent in pieces by wild horses than use it To which I imagine James thought, well, okay, deal. The path of true genius, though, is never smooth. And it took a while for it to be accepted. It took a while for James to order that a copy should be placed in each church. But time and the essential quality of the work did its job. In terms of language, then, much of the King James Version derives still from Tyndale, about 82%, apparently, not much less than in the Geneva Bible. Also might be worth noting that the real winner here was Old English, which apparently lies behind 90% of the words used. There is something of a debate about who had the most impact on the words and phrases that have become embedded in the English language, Shakespeare or the Bible. And the clever money has it that while Shakespeare added more new words, the King James Version has it for catchphrases and expressions. And I guess you can see why. Philistines like me try to avoid getting too much Shakespeare in their lives, whereas the Bible was once upon a time everywhere you went in England, and indeed wherever the English went to, particularly America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. In talking about the Bible, I'm always rather conscious, actually, that the real artists, I suppose, were the original writers of the Hebrew and Greek, but nonetheless, it was the rendering into English that made it memorable to all of us and expressions like, I don't know, fall flat on your face, or under the sun, or pride goes before a fall, I assume could have been rendered far less memorably. As far as expressions and idiomatic phrases go then, the King James Version has it. The King James Version became ubiquitous, the most common book in households by far, and the magic of its language not only inspired but formed an important step in beginning to standardise English, at least in its writing, and anyone who's seen 16th century texts know that the spelling there would most definitely get you a detention, even in the most liberal school in the country. But now, there was a standard text that a large and constantly growing number of people would love, cherish and share, a shared language of expressions by which to foster the coherence of the church. Right, that is pretty much it for the week. Once again, I aimed 4,000 words, ended up at six and a half. I have verbal diarrhoea. However, I must warble some more. Because I have some news, gentle listener. I have news of a quiz just for you. I am aware that King Jimmy lies between two of our favourite things. Not brown paper parcels and kittens tied up with string, but between Elizabeth and the Civil Wars. And so Jimmy gets ignored despised and rejected, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So I thought I would help you remember James's reign by delivering unto you a quiz on the reign. It is on the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk and it is free and available to all. I should point out that it is not expected to be fun. Presumably when you were young, people tried to convince you that learning can be fun, mainly people in school – I assume that you knew full well that while shouting, footy, running around like a blow-ass fly were all fun, learning was a pain in the bum. So this quiz is here to help you remember things about Jimmy's reign. And since it's about learning, it is therefore something of a drag. But I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. And I would dearly love to hear how you get on. So hi thee to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and try to have fun. That is definitively it now. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Enjoy the quiz, good luck, and have a fun fortnight until I return to try and spoil it all for you.